So 1 Samuel, these next few chapters, chapters 7 through about 11, we'll be in 8 and 9 tonight. This really deals with the idea of what kind of leaders we should follow and what kind of leaders we are going to be. Because really, whoever you follow, whoever you strive to be is going to really dictate who you are and how you live and, and what you're like. And so it spills into everything, it spills into your marriage, your, your place where you work, where you spend your time, where you spend your money. It, it, it influences and changes everything, whoever your leader is, whoever your king is, whoever you're following after. So tonight, we're going to be looking at two chapters, chapters eight and chapter nine. Chapter eight is Israel rejects the Lord in favor of a king. And chapter nine is God provides a king. So to kind of recap a little bit, if you haven't been here, first Samuel, this is the story that's been going on so far. Opens up with telling us about this guy named Samuel. Samuel is born miraculously and he gets left at the temple. And at the temple, he's raised by a guy named Eli. Eli has what the Bible calls worthless sons. He's got really, really bad kids under his roof, and they're employed at the temple. They're actively stealing from the Lord. They're extorting people. They are encouraging sexual immorality to take place within the temple. Um, they're really, really bad. And so Samuel's growing up in this household with those boys. He's seen bad parenting. He's seen how not to follow the Lord. That's the, the way he's being, in the environment he's being raised in. And within that, Yahweh, God, comes and speaks to Samuel, tells Samuel, you need to tell Eli, I'm over it. I'm done. This isn't going to be happening anymore. He has chosen to honor his children instead of honoring the Lord. And so Samuel, as a young boy, has faced this really difficult situation. He's got to tell the father figure in his life, essentially, that God's going to kill your kids and kill you because of what you're doing. Samuel does so, and Eli goes, well, let God do whatever seems right to him. Doesn't change any of his behaviors. Doesn't confront his kids. Doesn't change at all. And our God is a very patient God. And so years and years and years and years go by, and then finally, a day comes when the Israelites are at worth Philistine, and there's a battle. It goes poorly for the Israelites. And in that battle, God makes good on his promise that because Eli didn't change anything with his boys, his two boys die the same day and Eli dies that day. So a lot changes all at once. And so then after this, after all that has happened, Samuel judges Israel for the next 20 to 25 years before we get to chapters eight and nine. So he's been judging, he's been in charge, he's been running the show. And when he's doing that, Israel puts away all of their foreign gods and they only serve the Lord. And he's, his position is to mediate between Israel and God. He takes all of their issues, all their problems to God, directly talks to God. It's actually really amazing as we read, he has straight up conversations with the Lord. It's pretty, pretty wild. And for a season for Israel, there's peace. So we're going to pick up looking at just a few verses in chapter 7 for context, and then we're going to hit chapters 8 and chapters 9 tonight. So if you have your Bible, you can go to 1 Samuel chapter 7, just looking at verses 15 through 17, the end of the chapter, real quick. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his, play, for his home was there. 
and there also he judged Israel. And he built an altar to Yahweh. Chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So something happened with Samuel's kids. Billy Graham says there's three things that anyone who gets into ministry, Satan will, will use as a ploy to get them to fail, to fall, to, to get them out of the ministry. Billy Graham says there's three things. It's sex, it's money, and it's pride. For Eli's kids, well, it was sex and it was pride, wasn't it? They, they endorsed sexual immorality within the church. Eli esteemed his kids more than he esteemed God. I've always heard it taught it's gold, glory, and girls. Those are the three things that pastors can't touch. But I think Billy Graham's a little more right as we move into this newer age where it's not exclusive to girls anymore, is it? There's a lot of things that pastors, that those in ministry, that, that it, it, even in vocational ministry, however, Satan likes to use those three things to tempt and to get God's people to fail. And what's wild is if you were a football coach and you were going to go face a team and you knew they only had three plays, wouldn't you be really well guarded against those three plays? Wouldn't you make sure that there were defenses set up around those three areas so that they couldn't do the only three things they're really known for doing? But it's, what's wild is as you hear the drama about different church leadership or members in the church, the three things that Satan really has constantly used still gets people. The sex, the money, and the pride. And so with Samuel's kids, it's money. They, they take bribes and they pervert justice. And because of that, Israel goes, I don't know if we want these people anymore. Look at how his kids are turning out, just like Eli's kids. So something happens with Samuel's kids. And I think it could be one of two things. The first thing is this. Samuel could have been a really, really good dad. Like Samuel's awesome. Like God doesn't really have to correct him. Or Did I say Samson? Samuel. Samuel's really awesome. I might be saying Samson. I'm sorry. Samuel's really awesome. Samson, not so much. Samuel's great. Yeah, Samson's strong, but Samuel's great. He never, God never really has to correct him. Whatever he says, the Bible says, God doesn't let Samuel's words fall to the ground. God has given him a lot of authority. God has put him in a position to turn the whole nation around. It's pretty phenomenal. He probably was a really, really good dad. And he was raised in the household with Eli where he saw bad kids. He saw bad leadership, bad parenting. He saw anything goes. A guy who honors his kids more than the Lord. When I was going to school, I was taking business administration courses. And those business administration courses, one of them just had to focus on management. And they said, there's one thing amongst all the best managers in these top 500 companies. There's one thing that unites them all. They've all experienced the same thing. The best managers all had, at one point, the worst managers. Because they all looked at someone and they said, if I ever get into a spot where I'm responsible, where I'm in charge, I'll never do that. 
I'll never say that to that person. I would never behave that way. I would never lie. I would never cheat. I, I will not do the things I saw that person do. I'm not going to allow myself to become like that. The thing that made the best managers who they are is they looked back on past bad management experiences and they said, well, I'm not going to do it. Maybe that's something you've experienced in your life. And it's possible that's what Samuel has done. Samuel saw really bad parenting, really bad ways of leading, really bad ways of treating people, being raised in a bad system, and he could have easily wanted to push against it and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to treat my wife the way Phineas treated his wife, where there's all this sexual morality going on at the temple, but he's got a pregnant wife at home. I'm not going to allow my kids to behave in the way that Eli allowed his kids to behave. It's very possible that Samson was convicted in that way and did that. He could have been a really great dad, but he also had a really big job. But because remember, the Bible says he judged at Ramah too, which means he did his job at home, that he was present with his kids. He was invested in his kids. He went to their games. He talked with them. He laughed with them. He cried for them. He prayed for them. And despite all of his best efforts, his kids still go off the rails. So what happened? Well, Proverbs chapter one is written from a really godly dad, a wisdom-filled dad, and he's pleading with his son saying, hey, be really careful who you choose to hang out with because they could drag you into going down the evil ways. They could lead you down the broad path. They can cause you to do things that you would think, I would have never thought I could have done that. Romans tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. It's possible that despite Samuel's best efforts and all the time he invested that there was a crew his sons got involved in that introduced him to things that Samuel never wanted in his home and now they've gone astray and now they're doing things they know that they shouldn't be doing they've chosen to live differently sometimes parents can do their absolute best They could do their absolute best for their kids, try to spend as much quality time with them, try to invest in them at the right, be at all the games, say the right things and pray with them, do devotionals with them. And still their kids can go off the rails and they go, well, what happened? God, why is this happening? I thought if I trained a child up in the way that he should go, he wouldn't depart from it. I was really holding on to that. God, what's going on? When really what we have to remember is Even the best parents have kids that have a choice and they get to make their own choices. You look at Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples, didn't he? 12 disciples he spent three years investing in and still one of them chose, you know, I'd rather have money. When Satan came, presented them, it could have been the same three things in a different way, you know, money, sex, pride. One of them went, oh, I'll take money. I think I'd rather do that. And so you look at Jesus and go, man, if it could happen to Jesus, did Jesus do a bad job with those guys? Like, could he have done better? Could he have spent more time with Judas? Could he have changed the way he approached certain things? Could he have been more forgiving, more caring, more present? No way. People have the choice. Even if given the absolute best, like Jesus investing in you, people still have the choice to go, yeah, I'm gonna do my own thing. And so if you're here and maybe your kid is in that spot where you feel like, man, I, God, I, I just, I've been praying for this kid. God, I've invested so much in this kid and still that they're choosing to live their life in a way that I know isn't right. I know that you don't want for them. It's breaking my heart. What, what can you do? I think the first thing is you can remember that we have a God who came to seek and to save the lost. Like we talked about the prodigal son a few weeks ago, that we have a God 
who never turns his eyes away from someone and says, you know what? I don't even want you home. I can't even look at you anymore. No way. We have a God who, regardless of what choices you've made or bad decisions or things you've said, just wants to see you come home. Just wants to see your kids come home. We have a God who you can never lose his love. You can never add or subtract to his love. We have a God that doesn't want you to clean up your act before you come home. He just wants you to come home. That's the kind of God that we serve, a God that is just waiting patiently for his people to come home. Remember Eli and his kids, how they were awful, and the Bible calls them worthless. God was still very, very patient with them, giving them every opportunity to come back to him. So the first thing I think is you remember, we have a God who came to seek and save the lost. And the second thing is I think you pray to God full of hope. Because the Bible says we serve the God of all hope, don't we? So that in faith, we just talked about we have a God who can do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. Why wouldn't we ask or think big for our kids? And pray in hope, real God, today I pray that you will soften my kid's heart. I pray that you will help them see that they're in the pig pen and that they need to come home. God, I pray that you will change whatever thought process is going on and that they would come to know Jesus as King and as Lord, as a Savior and as friend this night. Okay, it didn't happen tonight. Jesus prayed this morning that you continue to work on my son's heart, my daughter's heart. God, I pray tonight, you just keep praying, full of hope, full of faith, knowing that my God loves this child more than I could ever love with my child. That my child, my God would give up anything, including his life for my kid. So I'm gonna talk to that God knowing that. That's the way I believe. Like, you've done everything for your kid. Amen, totally. You can still partner with God in getting your kid to come home by praying full of hope and full of faith for your child even today. So I think something happens with Samuel's kids. It could be one of two things. One, he could have been a really, really good dad. I don't want to discount that because I think that's probably true. But I've heard it taught a different way, so I want to give credit to it, but it's possible that another thing happened. Samuel could have had a really, really big job So first thing, Samuel could have been a really, really good dad, but Samuel could have also missed out on his kids. He had a really, really big job. It was really, really important. Think about the responsibility he had. He had to correct a nation in the way they approached God because the system they had been shown was so heinous. It was so backwards. It was so mixed up. And so now he's got to take the entire nation and change the way that they do traditions and the way that they follow the Lord. And it's possible that his kids got missed. Because the enemy can really tactfully use really, really good things in your life and misorder them in your mind so that instead of focusing on the best things, you've got good things on top of them and you've missed the best thing. Like there's really good things you can get caught up in with career or with your work or with what people think about you or the way that you look or the things that you have. They're all really good things. Those aren't bad things. But if they come misordered in your life, If the things that are more important become second or third or fourth place, well, then you miss out. The enemy has robbed your kids by misordering things in your life. Mark Scudstad has a saying that he's been saying over and over again since I got hired here. It's always good, better, best. There are things that are good, and we can really focus on the good things, but not if it's going to cause us to miss the best things. Like, think about it this way. In Matthew chapter 2, we're told that the scribes and the Pharisees know the place that Christ is going to be born. Herod goes and gets them and says, hey, these wise men say that there's a Messiah coming from your, your religious background. It's going to be born in the area. You know anything about it? And they look through their text. Like, oh, yeah, Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem in like three days. 
They have that info. But you know what? They've got a really big job. They've, they've got a lot of writing they got to do. They got to prep for Saturday service. Um, they got to make sure the chairs are all good and that the rooms are swept. They got to make sure that the kids' toys are all cleaned and that they have all the things sanitized. It's a, it's a lot of work. So we'll check in next week with the family, but we probably won't be there. That nuts to you? They had good things they had to focus on, but they missed the birth of God. They missed Jesus being born. They knew where and when, but you know what? They got really good things that kind of get in the way. Dude, that happens all the time where we allow good things to get in the way of the best things. Don't let the good things keep you away from the best things. It's possible that we allow our jobs, our careers, or really good things in our lives to get in the way of our family and our kids mess up or miss out on us. And then when they go off the rails, we go, oh, I tried so hard to provide for you. And your kids go, I don't even know who you are. And so it's possible that that happened with Samuel too. It could be that he was a really, really good dad, or it could have been that he was a really, really good and faithful worker, but missed out on his kids. I, I personally think it's more likely that he was a really good dad, but you don't really, it's conjecture either way. All we know is something happened with his kids. They perverted justice. They turned out bad. And now the Israelites don't want him, like you're going to see in verse four. So verse four, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. What a way to start a conversation, right? You're old. and I don't like your kids. Things are going good. <laughs> now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So people come to, the ki- to Samuel. So we don't want your kids to judge us. We want a, a king instead like all the other nations. And what they're saying is much more significant than, hey, the priestly system, we're not liking it. We'd like a different form of government. What they're saying is they want to look like how every other nation looks. They don't want the nation to keep going in the direction that they're going. We want to be able to choose for ourselves what we're going to be doing and how things are going to be ran. It's essentially the entire story of the Bible, isn't it? Where the entire story, entire story of the Bible kind of boils down to who's going to be king. Are you going to allow God to be king or are you going to be king? The Bible opens with a choice. Are you going to do what God says is right and abstain from what God says is wrong? Or are you going to choose for yourself what is right and what is wrong? And we learn in the absence of a king, everyone does whatever is right in their own sight. What kings are supposed to do is they set boundaries, don't they? They set the boundaries of what their nation is. This is my territory. They set the boundaries politically. They set boundaries even socially. This is what you can do. This is what you can't say. This is how you treat people. This is how you deal with things in your business. This is where your money goes. Kings get to decide everything. It influences every single aspect of your life. And so I wonder, it makes me wonder when I read this, when I think about this, if someone were to take stock of my life, and break down all the things that I say and the way that I talk to people and the way that I deal with my wife and the way that I raise my kids and where my money goes and where I choose to spend my free time, what I look at on the internet, what I search for, what videos I watch. If someone takes stock of everything that I look at, would they be able to objectively say, oh, this guy serves God. This guy serves a different king. Or would I just simply look like everybody else? Because that's what Israel's asking for. I don't want the constraints on my life. I don't want to have to be, 
I don't want to continue to go this way. I want to look like all the other nations. I want to do whatever I decide is right. I want to do what the world is doing. I want to look like the earthly kings and their nations. In verse 6, what you see is it displeases Samuel. So what do you do when someone does or says something that you don't like? When it, they do something that displeases you, when they approach you and say, hey, you're old and I don't like your kids. I know if you want to get in a fight with me, you say something rude about my kids. Right? That get, takes me from a zero to ten. I might be the only parent who feels that way. I don't know. My, kid, my oldest is six, so maybe I'm still in this, oh, they're perfect right? Stage and things might change. But I know for me, you, I'm, age doesn't hurt me so much, except for when someone calls me 12, which happens often. I look young. It's fine. But if you say something rude about my kids, I'm going to get frustrated. Someone comes up to Samuel, the elders, the leaders of the nation come up and say, you're old. We don't like your kids. How do you respond when someone says something that really displeases you? The first thing that Samuel does is he goes away somewhere private and he seeks the Lord. Do you see that? He goes and he talks to the Lord about it. He's been brought, he's been hit with confrontation. Someone's just hot on him. And he goes, I need to go sit aside. I need to go bring this up to God. I need to go talk with him about it. If you do that, doesn't that change things? Like when you're, you're, have you ever responded in anger and then realized you didn't have the whole story And now you feel embarrassed and, oh my gosh, you shouldn't have done that. But then have you ever been in a similar situation where you do go and talk to the Lord about it? And then all of a sudden you feel God's peace that passes all understanding on you. And you go, maybe I don't need to address that thing. And then you find out the whole story later and you go, oh, I'm glad I didn't say anything. It's like this. There's a story where a man lives out in the wilderness all by himself, far from all technological advances. So he's ignorant of planes, trains, automobiles. He only knows this place way out in the wilderness by himself. And one day he decides he's going to go visit family who lives in a more rural area, more technologically advanced place. And so he gets up and he goes to travel to his family. And as he's walking there, he comes across train tracks, something he's never seen before. As he gets on the train tracks, he sees a train coming and he hears, and he looks at it. He puts his hand up, tell it to stop but it's not going to slow down. It's not stopping. It's still coming. So then he yells at it. Hey, stop. And it goes a little louder and it's getting closer. And so he jumps out of the way at the last minute, but it just kind of nicks him a little bit. So he rolls down on the side of all that shale that's always on train tracks and he's beaten and he's bruised and he's bleeding a little bit, but it's not mortal. He's okay. He's just really confused by the whole situation, a little frustrated by whatever that was. But he continues going to his family's house When he gets to his family's house, he opens the door and they go, what happened to you? He goes, I don't want to talk about it. He sits down. He's all angry. He's he's brooding. And the family goes, well, let me make you some tea and we can try to figure this out. So they sit the the kettle on the oven and they they turn on the heat and he's trying to have a conversation. And all of a sudden the kettle gets hot and it goes, and so the man looks at the kettle, gets up, picks up and throws it against the wall. He's yelling at it. And the family goes, what's what's going on? Why'd you do that? He goes, you got to kill those and they're young. Trust me. (laughs) Whenever you're hot, whenever someone says something to you and you lash out, don't you end up kind of like that guy where you've made a kettle into a train where you, you get angry and you lash out at someone and you go, 
yeah, that's how it is. They go, what are you talking about? <laughs> Man, if, I know I've been there before where I say things in anger that I wish I hadn't said. And James says we need to be people as Jesus followers who are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. In fact, James says human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And so instead of lashing out at these people who are clearly, even though they're clearly in the wrong, he seeks the Lord. He goes off to a private place and he goes, I need to talk to God about this. I need to know what God thinks about this. Man, if we did that, wouldn't that change everything in our marriages and with our kids and with our coworkers? I think it really would. So verse seven says, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel feels rejected by the people. They just came at him in this way that makes him feel reasonably like, man, the people are against me right now. But God says, it's not actually about you. It's actually me that they're rejecting. It's not about you, Samuel. It's about the Lord and the Lord's relationship with the people. And it's a pattern that God has been seeing out of the Israelites ever since he brought them out of Egypt, where continually God's people will go, hey, you know what? Uh, I don't think God's going to come through for us. I don't think God's going to feed us. I don't think God's going to allow us access into the promised land and defeat those people. I don't think that God is going to defeat those enemies. I don't think that God is going to outperform their gods. It's been this pattern with Israel over and over and over again. And this is just one more time that God's people are saying, you know what? I don't think we want to follow God. I think we want to follow a king and look like all the other nations. Israel forgets that its strength, that it, the strength that makes it what it is as a nation is that it's unlike the other nations. That they're supposed to be a contrasted community completely set apart and unlike any other nation. That their leadership and their law was supposed to come directly from the Lord. But right now, they're more worried and caught up in what their neighbors are doing, what the other nations are doing. They look at themselves and they go, well, if we have no army. We have no king. We're kind of just this ragtag group of tribes that even amongst themselves don't get along very well. And I look at the Philistines and they're organized and they're disciplined and they've got a common guy that they all respect and turn to for leadership and for direction. And we're not having that. And so on paper, their circumstances don't seem like theirs are as good as the Philistines or the Amorites or any of the people around them, any of the other Canaanites. In fact, on paper, it looks like they've got a real disadvantage. And they forget where in all the times in the past, ever since Egypt, who has been the sole source of every victory that they've ever had. Like, remember back when we were studying through Judges, there was this guy named Sisera who was a really, really bad dude, major army, massive army, technologically advanced army, had chariots of iron, unheard of in that time. And so the Israelites are looking at that going, there's nothing we can do. And on paper, they're right. It's a lost battle. 
Why would you even bother going to war? You might as well spend a few more days with your family before the army gets there because you're not going to win. But God tells him to go to war. And when you read that story in Judges, it says nothing about the Israelite army. It says the Lord stopped Cicero's chariots. The Lord sent bad weather. And then the Lord delivered them over to Israelite's army. And you go, oh my gosh, what were we even worried about? I forgot we had a big guy on our team. And you see that with Gideon, huh? With Gideon, you get 300 Israelites and they're looking at this massive army. It looks like ants on bread on the ground, right? There's just so much going on, that whole army in front of them. And Gideon's going, what am I going to do? And in the following, what happens next is God confuses the armies and they fight each other. That the Israelites don't have to do anything. Neither one of them is holding a weapon. They're holding a horn and a torch. They don't have a sword in their hands. And God gives them the victory. See, the Israelites are supposed to be in remembrance of this going, man, how has my God always come through for me? Look at how he's always provided for me. Look at how he's always given over the victory. Maybe I don't have to stress out. Maybe I don't have to be anxious. Maybe he's got it under control. That it's not actually about me, but it's about my God. And they forget that. And when we look at the Israelites, we can look at them and go, oh, you absolute fools. How could you do this again? Why are you worrying so much? How could you not trust in the Lord? But man, don't I do this in my own life? Where I look at the circumstances on paper and I go, oh, there's just no way. There's just no way I can stand up for what's right there. They're going to they're gonna crush me. They're going to take my job. They're all going to rile against me. They're going to vote me out. I'm going to get let go. Oh, if I try to take my kids to church or if I try to make them go to youth group, they're just going to get all upset at me and they're going to look at me and go, yeah, but look at your life, dad. Look at how the way that you talk and the way that things that you do. Why would we go to church? You don't live that way. Well, look at the circumstances of my life on paper. I look at what's stacked against me and I go, man, there's just no way. Why would I even try in my job or with my kids or my marriage or with politics or with the way that the world is going? Do I trust in the Lord or do I look at all the material and I get stressed out and I get anxious? Yeah, Jesus says that we're supposed to look at the birds in the field and look at the lilies and look at how God provides and takes care of them. And if we say, you know what? If God even takes care of those things, how much more important am I? God didn't give up his life for those things. God gave up his life for you. you on a tier system, you're a little bit higher than, aren't you? And so if God looks at you that way, don't you think he's got your back? Don't you think like a good father, he wants to give you every good gift? Man, why do we allow ourselves to get anxious or stressed out when the world seems stacked against us? It's not about me. It's about the one who's on my team. It's a, whose team I'm on. I'm a God's team. I'm God's people. Oh, it's fine. It's going to be great. I bet you every Israelite who is standing with Gideon and every Israelite who's standing in front of Sisera wished that they went into the battlefield going, oh, my God's got this. Because afterward, that's all they could do is think, wow, my God really had that. I wish I was braver. I wish I had more courage. I wish I could have stood there with a smile on my face, knowing how my God's in control. That's the opportunity you and I have today, this week, this month, as difficult things come our way. You go, nah, I know the God who's on my team. It's going to be okay. And so verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He's going to draft your kids for war, is what he's saying. 
So know this. If you get a king, your kids are going to be drafted for war and they're not going to have a choice in the matter. Where God allowed those who were scared to go home with Gideon, they're not going to be given that opportunity. They will be drafted for whatever wars your king decides to wage. Verse 12, and he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters into his service. He's going to take the fruits of your labor. Samuel's really saying, do you know what you're asking for? You're not just asking for some guy to be in charge. You're asking for everything to change. And he's going to take and he's going to take. If you want to look like the other nations, it's going to really cost you. In verse 15, it continues. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Tenth, tenth, tenth. There's this amount Israel was already prepared to give to the Lord every month, the tithe. Hey, 10% of whatever we do. He's saying, yeah, the king is going to demand his share too. Are governments expensive? As we come to the end of the year, are you reminded of how expensive they are? There's this statistic, there's this number, and I don't know if it's accurate anymore, but you know what day May 15th is? Basically, it's this. You work 365 days on May 15th, from January to May 5th, January 1st to May 15th, that proportion of your income all goes to the government. Is that nutty? Bro, that's what Samuel's saying. Do you want that? It's costly. It's going to take from your family. It's going to take from your income. It's going to take from your fields. What you're asking for is going to change everything. It's going to be a burden for you. Living under the Lord, they've had a God who has supplied their every need, who has not been wanting really anything from, from them other than their faith and a relationship and, a, and a communication and service to him. But they're not asking for God was never crushing them. Samuel's saying, if you get a king, it's going to crush you. The emphasis of Samuel's speech is this king is going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. Service to the Lord is completely different. Notice that our king, that Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, how he describes himself, he describes himself as not a king who's come to be served, but a king who's come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These people are demanding a king like all the other nations. See, the king that they could have had if they were patient weren't saying, we want a king right now, we want him in our way. The king they could have had is a king who's come to serve them and a king who's come to give life to them and not a king who just wants to take and to take and to take. This is actually why Jesus was so disappointing to the Jews in Rome, because they wanted a king just like all the other nations had. They wanted Jesus to come back like Caesar, that Jesus was going to come and rile up an army and that he was going to take Rome out and establish his kingdom here on earth. And they were going to look like all the other nations. It's just Israel would have been number one. That's not the kind of conquest Jesus was interested in, though, huh? And that's why the Jews were so disappointed in him, because they, this pattern that happened from Egypt 
to this day in 1 Samuel continues all the way to when Jesus is on earth where they go, we just want to look like everyone else. We want a king like everybody else. And verse 18, Samuel wraps up and he says, and in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. There's no recounts. There's no repeal process. You'll cry out. You'll throw protests. You'll, you'll have made, you can do whatever you want, but you will have made your choice. You will have a king now. Right now, you don't. Samuel's given this as a warning. Right now, you don't have a king. If you get a king, this is what it looks like. You don't want this. But verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Doesn't this totally foreshadow? Right now, you have Israel who says we want a king. It's like all the other nations. We don't want God. We want a king like all the other nations. Doesn't this so similarly foreshadow what happens in John chapter 19, verse 15, where you have the son of God standing before the people he created and they yell out, we have no king but Caesar. Where they're looking at God they're looking at the Son of God and they, they don't say, we want a king like all the other nations. They say, we'll have a king of the nations. We don't want the king of heaven. Isn't that wild that God's people have continued in these patterns until they're looking at God? It's hard to follow an invisible God. Isn't it hard to act in faith, trusting that God is going to do something when you can't see him? The tangible God is standing in front of the Israelites and they say, we have no king but Caesar. And they reject them. And so verse 21 and when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. He hears what the people say. Is it disappointing? Is Samuel disappointed by what the people say in response to him? Totally but look at what he does again. He goes and he talks to God. He goes back to the Lord and tells him. And it's not like God was in need of this information. God wasn't in the temple and he's going, Samuel, what did he say? He's got, man, does he have a speech impediment? I can't tell what he said. Do you know what he said? Those guys from Ephraim, they've got such a country accent. I, all I could understand was NASCAR. <laughs> God, God wasn't going, man, I wonder what was being said out there. No. Why is it so important that Samuel went to go and talk to God then? God didn't need that. God didn't need the information. God wasn't curious how the, the meeting played out. He knew exactly how it played out. Why is it so important that Samuel go and talk to God? Because God really delights when his kids come and talk to him. I have a six-year-old daughter, which that probably matters a lot. I have a six-year-old daughter who goes to preschool. And when she comes back from preschool in her most excited way, she will share with me information that I have known for decades. I know, I know it all, but you know what? She's so excited to tell me that I act like, oh my gosh, wow, that really, 
They have wings and they can't fly. How do penguins get around? Like you have these conversations with your kids because they're so excited to talk to you that it's a delight for you, isn't it? Our God wants that kind of relationship with you and with me that he actually delights in talking with his kids. He wants you to tell him what happened in your day, even though he knows. He wants you to tell him about that conflict you had at work, even though he heard about it. He wants you to tell him all that's going on with your hopes and your dreams and your disappointments, what's going on with your wife, the victories that you had, the failures you've experienced, where you want to go with your job, the things that you want to see God do in your life. He wants to hear all of that and he delights in it. Samson doesn't go to tell God because it's a chore. Samson goes because he's so disappointed and hurt. God's the one he wants to confide in most because God is the source of all of his joy and his strength. That's the relationship that God wants with you and with me. And so I know that I promised we would get to chapter nine, and that's just not going to happen. So God wanted a king. The Israelites wanted a king, but they wanted it their way. God had promised a king, but they weren't, the Israelites weren't going to allow God to bring the king in the way that God wanted to. And so as a result, God is going to give them their king, and it's, it's going to be a punishment for them. That God's going to give them exactly what they want. And sometimes that's the worst thing that can happen for us, isn't it? And so to, to, to loop back to what we were talking about at the beginning, maybe that's where your kids are at. If you have kids that have kind of run off the rails, or maybe that's where you at, you're at, you feel like you've kind of ran off the rails. Maybe there's been things that you've been thinking, that's going to make me happy. That's going to be the source of my strength and my joy. That's going to make me complete. That's the good thing that's going to become the best thing. And in all of those things, it's left you empty and going, man, this isn't what I thought it would be. That's what this king is going to be. God's going to give them this king and they're going to have the king and it's going to be a disappointment. It's going to lead to a lot of hurt. It's going to lead to a lot of frustration and a lot of pain. Know that our God, he wants you, he wants your kids to come home to him, regardless of what choices you've made regardless of where you've been, regardless of the things that you've asked for and he's given to you. Sometimes he gives you those things, the thing that you've asked for to let you see, man, that isn't all that I hoped it was so that you would return to him and go, just like the kid, the prodigal son, at least there I was loved. At least there I was cared for. At least there I had a place to lay my head. Man, if that's the spot where your kids are tonight, pray to the God of all hope. That we have a God who really wants to see his people follow him as king and trust him in faith that God's going to, to fight their battles and come through for them. God doesn't want a group of people that look like all the other nations. He wants a group of people who are contrasted and set aside as his people. So Jesus, this morning we do lift up all the kids represented here that the young minds who are still in the kids' wing, Lord, that they would be trained up, raised up in the way that they should go and that they would not depart from it. Lord, I love the picture of the hedge of protection that you have in Job, even though it's so cliche. The idea is it's, a, it's like a thorn bush. It's a blackberry bush. Lord, we pray that around our kids, that as they go to touch sin, that it would prick them and it wouldn't be fun and it wouldn't be enjoyable and they would choose to stay away from that and not follow in those decisions. We pray for the friends that our kids are hanging around. That they would be good, godly influences on them. That they would encourage each other into uprightness and righteousness. 
God, we pray for the kids who are a little bit older, who have already made decisions that have come back to hurt them. And we pray that they would know that they have a God who's not waiting for them to clean up their act or to pay a penance or to make a sacrifice before they can come home, but they're wanted home right now this day. And so Jesus, in faith, we lift up these kids to the God of all hope. And I pray that if tonight we are one of those people who have gone astray, who have been lost, who feel like we're disconnected from our king, I pray today we would look towards Jesus and find a king who would give up anything for us just to return home and have a relationship with him. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Drive safe.